If you are listening to this when it first comes out, I want to let you know that on Tuesday, December 29th, I am doing a special live stream where I recap the year and do question and answers. I will be editing that and releasing it on the main feed, so you should see it later this week. I know I said it was going to be the 28th, as in today, as I'm releasing this episode, but I had a change in plans with daycare, and I have to accommodate that. So it will be Tuesday, December 29th, 2 p.m. You can watch on Get Vocal. I'll leave a link in the show notes, or you can watch on Facebook, on the Crime Lines page, or like I said, you can just listen back when I release it in the feed later this week. On with the show. This episode, more than most of my episodes, is not recommended for young listeners as there are a few graphic details. Listener discretion is advised. In 2000, 2001, and 2004, the same family living in small-town Missouri experienced three separate tragedies— two murders and one disappearance. This week, I will bring you the stories of two of those cases, the murder of Wendy Gillenwater and the disappearance of Branson Perry. Next week, we will cover the murder and fetal abduction case of Bobby Joe Stinnett. How can one family face so much tragedy? I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to the show, and welcome if this is your first time listening. This episode is going to be part of a short series, but it's not going to be part one and part two in the sense that you'll want to wait to listen to them back to back. There isn't really any carryover between the episodes. The link between them is that the victims were all related. The two we're talking about tonight were first cousins. Next week, we will talk about another cousin's wife and daughter. So I do want to start with a quick family tree so we can understand the family relations here. The family really starts with the marriage of Joanne Hoffman and Babe Stinnett in 1965. Joanne already had several children, and Babe also had kids. He was a widower and was on his own. Once they Brady-bunched their family together, they had nine children total. One of these children was Sandra, who had a daughter named Wendy Gillenwater, and Wendy's story will be the first case we are talking about today. All the cases that we're talking about happened in Skidmore, Missouri, which is one of the most famous small towns in America. With fewer than 300 people, It was put on the national map in 1981 when a group of residents confronted the town bully Ken McElroy. While he sat in his truck with his wife, he was shot to death. At least two guns were used. Out of the 30 or 40 witnesses, everyone claimed to not have seen the shooter or shooters. Everyone, that is, except Ken's wife, who named someone, but there was never enough proof to bring charges. So if Skidmore sounds like a familiar name to you, it's probably because of Ken McElroy. But in the 1990s and early 2000s, Skidmore began battling a problem much harder to deal with than a town bully, meth. Meth is a highly addictive drug 
that is cheap and easy to make. People can buy what they need at a local Walmart. And rural Missouri led the country in home meth labs in the 2010s. Wendy Gillenwater, one of Joanne and Babe Stinnett's granddaughters, became addicted to methamphetamines in her early 20s alongside her boyfriend, Greg Dragu. The two moved in together in their late teens in 1994. By October 2000, the two were still together, but things were really bad. Greg was physically abusive, often due to his meth use. Meth is a stimulant, and while some people feel euphoric, some become anxious and irritable. It can also heighten the fight-or-flight reaction, making people more likely to overreact to relatively minor issues. And some people can also experience psychosis. Greg was someone who did deal with the so-called ice rage when he was high. Wendy was the target that he often chose to vent this anger. In addition to physical violence in the relationship, Greg was incredibly controlling. His paranoia escalated right alongside his meth use. He didn't want Wendy to leave the house without him ever. He isolated her from her family. If Greg left Wendy home alone, he would sometimes take her shoes with him or even her clothes so she couldn't go anywhere. I know it's sometimes hard to understand why someone emotionally would find it difficult to leave an abusive relationship. How can someone really love someone who attacks them like this? But we know it happens even if we don't understand it. But let's go ahead in this case and add on an active addiction on Wendy's part, a lack of any funds, they were living in poverty, and virtually no access to any assistance. The nearest city with resources was an hour away, and Wendy could barely get away from Greg long enough to see her family. On October 16th, 2000, 26-year-old Greg flew into a rage for whatever reason. Who knows? It's possible he doesn't even know. He was high on meth at the time. He began beating Wendy, and it's not clear how long the attack lasted. It ended when Greg dragged Wendy, unconscious, into the backyard around 1.30 p.m., A neighbor saw what was going on and came out of his house. He grabbed the phone and called 911. It was only when Greg noticed the neighbor that he stopped the attack. Greg then walked around to the front of the house and sat on the steps while he waited for the police. When the paramedics got there, they found Wendy clinically dead. They transported her to the hospital after performing CPR and providing her with artificial respiration. Because they did manage to resuscitate Wendy, Greg was arrested and charged with first-degree assault. However, Wendy never regained consciousness or was able to breathe on her own. She was declared dead around 5.15 that evening at the hospital. At this point, the charges against Greg were going to be upgraded to some homicide charge. 
The autopsy found extensive injuries, some old and many new, and the cause of death was ruled to be blunt trauma to the chest and abdomen. When the police asked Greg what happened, he confessed to what he had done, so he was charged with murder. Even with the confession and a neighbor willing to testify that it was Greg who pulled Wendy out of the house to continue this assault, it initially looked like this case was headed to trial. From the reporting at the time, it appears that Greg was going for a partial defense. So, in Missouri, a jury can consider convicting on lesser charges. In some states, there is a back and forth between the attorneys over what charges can be included in jury instructions. But in Missouri, lesser included offenses are always explained to the jury. So even if the state charges someone with first-degree murder, and that's the case they present, the jury can convict on any homicide charge. So a partial defense is basically saying, yes, I'm guilty, but not of the highest charge. In this case, Greg was charged with second-degree murder, and his defense could present to the jury the case for finding him guilty for voluntary manslaughter instead. It can be the difference between decades in prison. Greg did undergo psychiatric evaluations that uncovered a severe substance abuse issue, as well as severe child abuse. In the end, Greg opted to plead guilty to the second-degree murder charge in August 2001, right before his trial was set to start. Wendy's family was relieved to not have to sit through that trial, and here are the details of what Wendy endured. Listening to the medical examiner walk through her injuries would have been awful. I read them, and it was overwhelming. At Greg's sentencing hearing, Wendy's sister said in her victim impact statement, I have been sentenced to life without my sister. I didn't have a say in this matter, and I didn't have a choice. But Greg Dragu has his life, his family, and he had his choice. So the judge did acknowledge that Greg was a victim most of his life, having suffered abuse and trauma of his own. The judge even expressed sympathy for what Greg went through to get him to where he was. He also pointed out the role drugs played in the relationship. But in the end, he said that due to the pattern of abuse that Greg inflicted on Wendy, the judge still found that he deserved life in prison. Greg is still locked up. He did appeal in 2004. It's really hard to appeal when you made a plea since there aren't trial errors you can point to and base your appeal on. Missouri does allow people who pleaded guilty to appeal the conviction on the basis of ineffective assistance of counsel, or they can appeal the sentence based on an error, like if the sentence exceeded the maximum allowed. But second-degree murder is a Class A felony, and the maximum sentence is life, which is what he got. Greg's appeal was denied. A life sentence for second-degree murder in Missouri typically means parole eligibility after 30 years. Greg has served 20 of those, so he may be eligible for parole in the next decade. 
Wendy's family went on to advocate for domestic violence resources in rural areas. In the 10 months between when Wendy was brutally murdered and Greg's guilty plea, the Stinnett family experienced another tragedy. Of that blended family of Joanne and Babe's nine children, one of them was Bob Perry, and Bob had a son named Branson. Branson Perry was six years younger than his cousin Wendy. He also grew up in Skidmore with his parents Bob and Becky, and he had a brother three years younger than him. One of Branson's childhood friends said in the docuseries No One Saw a Thing that all the kids in the neighborhood played at Branson's house. It was the fun place to be, and that was by design by Bob and Becky. Bob had built a playground set that was big and expansive because he and Becky figured that if the kids were all over at their house playing, well, then they knew where their kids were and that they were safe. It's a smart plan, and it's part of why my house gets overrun by teenagers on the regular, or at least it did before the pandemic. Bob and Becky owned and operated a greenhouse business together, and everyone had pretty much the same things to say about them. They were a respected family and respected business owners who raised two polite and clearly well-loved boys. Branson was into martial arts, specifically Hapkido. Hapkido is a Korean martial arts that is related to the Japanese Aikido but they've developed quite differently over the years. Branson did attain a black belt in the art. After high school, Branson intended to enlist in the Army, but he failed his physical. He went to his doctor and was diagnosed with tachycardia. This really just meant that his heart would race out of proportion to his level of exertion or activity. As far as I can tell, he was not put on medication for this, but it was still enough to disqualify him from the service. So instead, Branson got a job as a roofer until he was laid off. He then had trouble finding steady work after that, which is a real problem in rural areas where there just simply aren't as many places to find employment. In 2000, Bob and Becky divorced. Branson was already out of school, and he stayed living with Bob in Skidmore, while Becky and Branson's then 16-year-old brother moved about 20 miles away. The divorce was about as amicable as these things can be. Bob even helped Becky move out, and their boys moved between the houses freely. On Friday, April 13, 2001, Branson's grandmother... Joanne stopped by the house to check on him. His father, Bob, had been in the hospital, and Branson had been really good about visiting his father while he was admitted. But when Joanne went to see Bob herself on Thursday, the day before, he mentioned Branson hadn't been in on Wednesday night as expected. Bob also told Joanne that he was supposed to be discharged on Friday, but the doctors decided to keep him for a few more days. So Joanne went out to the house because she wanted to check on Branson and also let him know that his dad was not coming home that day. When Joanne got out to the house, she found the doors unlocked, music playing loudly, 
and Branson's beloved pet, Unfed. She thought it was odd, but she also had raised nine kids and knew that 20-year-olds do odd things sometimes. On a Saturday, Joanne went back to the house and found everything the way she had left it, and it was clear that Branson had not come home in between. So at this point, Joanne was concerned and called around to some of Branson's friends to see if they knew where he was. Not only did they not know where he was, it had been a few days since any of them had even heard from him. On Sunday, Bob was discharged from the hospital, and he called Branson's mother, Becky. He told her that they hadn't heard from Branson in days, and she said she hadn't either. Now, he is a young adult. He is free to come and go as he pleased, but without any contact, which was very unlike him, they were worried. The next day, Bob, Joanne, and Becky met at the police station to report Branson missing. It was April 16th, three days after his family first realized he was gone. But the investigation showed that it was actually five days since anyone had seen Branson. On that day, which was two days before Joanne went to the house to check on him, Wednesday, April 11th, Branson had a friend named Gina come over. He wanted to clean the house top to bottom. He wanted the house perfect so that when Bob came home from his hospital stay, he just wouldn't have to worry about anything. While cleaning, Gina saw Branson grab something from a kitchen cabinet and run out the back door with it. When he came back into the house, she asked him, what was that all about? And he wouldn't tell her. But... It wasn't an adamant refusal to tell her, more like he just brushed off her question and didn't answer it. There were two men outside trying to fix the alternator on Bob's car, which was parked on the street. So it's possible Branson just ran something out to them and didn't tell Gina what it was because it would take longer to explain than it was worth. But of course, when someone goes missing, everything feels like a potential clue, even when it's a small thing like this. After cleaning for a bit longer, Gina went in to take a shower. When she came out of the bathroom, she saw one of the men who had been working out on the car in the kitchen himself, and he was going through the cabinets. She asked him what he was looking for. He said nothing and left. From my understanding, he didn't leave leave, he just left the house and he went back out to working on the car. But here we have the second time someone went into those cabinets, Gina asked what it was about, and they wouldn't tell her. So what is going on with these cabinets that no one is telling Gina about? Then around 3 p.m., Gina was upstairs in the house when she heard the porch door close. She looked out and she saw Branson. She called out the window at him and asked where he was going. He said he was just putting the jumper cables back in the shed. Some reports are that he also said that he needed to go do something and would be right back. Other reports omit him saying he was going somewhere else and just talk about the jumper cables. Branson's mother, Becky, said, 
that she was given multiple stories about what happened that day. So it's definitely not surprising that got into the reporting as well. Gina said she finished up in the house and waited for Branson to come back. But when he didn't, she thought he just got distracted doing something and she left. The men who were at the house out front working on the car, they said they didn't see anything. They were on the street in a quiet town, so it seems a little odd that they both didn't see Branson walk past and they didn't hear him get into a car or anything. But I guess if they're working on Bob's vehicle, they could have just missed it. According to the family, everything Branson owned was still in the house, which gave no clues as to where he had headed off to, except to say if he left voluntarily, he did not anticipate being gone for long. Because even his wallet was left at the house. A check of the shed showed the jumper cables were not in there, so it seemed like Branson vanished just walking the several feet from his house to the shed located on the lot next to the house. The organized searches began on Tuesday, starting on the Perry property and moving out. Investigators were at a huge disadvantage starting the official search six days after Branson was last seen. Due to the time that had elapsed and the weather that week, it was determined that scent dogs would not be effective, so they didn't bring them in. Abandoned structures were searched. We're talking old barns, farmhouses, even an empty school. If any evidence was found on these searches, it has not been made public. An alert was put on Branson's bank account, an account he had only recently opened, but there was no activity. Witness statements steered the investigation since there were no real clues or forensics, and one statement was that of Bob Perry, Branson's father. Before I tell you what he said, I need to disclaim it a little. This story has been repeated in several places, but it's pretty much verbatim each time, which makes me suspect everyone is pulling it from a single source. Not just pulling it in many cases, but actually just copy and pasting it. That source is Diane Fanning's true crime book, Baby Be Mine, which covers the case we are going to talk about next week. But it does have a section devoted to Branson. And that's where the statement comes in. The story is that on April 7th, shortly before he went missing, Branson went over to the house of a neighbor named Jason. Jason was about 10 years older than Branson. While there, Branson took a drug. He was not sure what it was. While high, Branson stripped down naked, danced around, shaved his pubic hair, and then he engaged in sexual activity with Jason. Branson went home afterwards and told his father what had happened. He was very upset about it. Bob had suspected that Branson was gay already, and that was not the issue for him. But intoxicated consent is not actually consent. Branson and Bob both believed that the older neighbor had purposely given Branson something in order to rape him. Bob considered going to Jason's house and having it out with him, but he decided not to. 
This is a small Midwestern town where homophobia was a considerable fear for gay men. And my speculation is that this is likely what informed his and Branson's decision not to come forward about what happened before Branson's disappearance. So let's circle back to my disclaimer. I only have that one source for the story, or that Bob even said this. Now, I can't imagine Diane Fanning making this up, but I do like to point it out when details come from just one place, even when I personally trust the source. So according to Fanning, Bob thought Branson may have hitchhiked to stay with a really good friend who was living in Kansas City, about an hour and a half away from Skidmore. It was the type of thing Branson would have done, being that he was upset. But on the other hand, he didn't have a vehicle and he would have had to hitchhike there. But the family didn't think Branson was the type to have hitchhiked there. He certainly hadn't before, as far as they knew. But when you have someone missing, you follow any lead. The friend in Kansas City was contacted, but he hadn't heard from Branson. And as for Jason, who some may be thinking maybe he did something to keep Branson quiet about what happened, he was looked into, and as far as I can tell, he was cleared. Another lead to follow up on came from Gina's statement. She admitted that Branson had started getting in with drug dealers, not just using, but also helping supply some of the raw ingredients to manufacture meth. And this is another point as to the hold meth can have in rural areas. Job options are limited. Drugs are a way you can make money when no one else is hiring. Branson struggled to find full-time employment after he got laid off, so he may have turned to helping manufacture meth as a way to make money. The closest bigger city to Skidmore, the place where the drugs were mostly sold, was St. Joseph, Missouri. Just Google meth and St. Joseph, Missouri if you want to see what the meth epidemic looks like there. It is rough. So investigators checked with drug connections and informants in St. Joseph, and they interviewed several people. Through this, the police came to believe that whatever happened to Branson was definitely drug-related, though they are keeping the specifics of what they mean by that under wraps. It was two weeks after Branson disappeared that the most baffling clue of all showed up. The jumper cables, the ones that were not in the shed when it was searched the first time, were found. They were found in the shed, just inside the door. They were in an obvious spot, not hidden and not somewhere the police may have missed on the search. It's not clear in the reporting when the last time someone had been to the shed, so we don't know if they were left there perhaps right before they were found or if they had been there for days. The cables were not, from what the family understands, dusted for prints. The material they're made of is not good for holding onto prints, and even if they found one partial print, so many people were known to have handled those jumper cables that it probably wouldn't have been much help. But the biggest question surrounding these jumper cables is why. 
Why put the cables back in the shed? Why risk being seen on the property with them? Why not just throw them in the river if you're so afraid of getting caught with them? What was the point of putting them back? It makes no sense to me, so part of me wonders if the cables actually were in the shed and the reporting that they were found in plain view was actually mistaken because I honestly cannot come up with a valid reason to take the risk of returning them. And trust me, I've tried. They have no real significance in this case because even if they wanted to put them in the shed to make it look like Branson went missing after he made it to the shed, what does that do? It changes the timeline by three minutes at most. As a risk for a kidnapper or a murderer to take, it doesn't make sense. So now, four months after Branson disappeared, the sheriff told the St. Joseph News Press that they had identified the people Branson was last seen with, but he was not getting much cooperation from them. He did say they were Branson's friends, and he suspected something illegal contributed to his disappearance. That's why they were all keeping quiet, but their silence was hindering the case. There has been a long-standing rumor that Branson was at another house in Skidmore after Gina last saw him. And if this rumor is true, this may be the group the police are talking about. Nine months after Branson's disappearance, the Missouri State Highway Patrol admitted that they and the rest of law enforcement participating in this case were at dead ends. Then a year after Branson's disappearance, the family contacted Missouri psychic Joyce Morgan. When I say family, I should specify that it was Bob and Grandma Joe, not Becky. Becky believed Joyce was just looking for money and attention, but Joyce reportedly worked on the case for free. She said that Branson was killed the same day he disappeared, and she told the police what she saw happen to him and who did it. She then predicted his body would be soon found. Time is relative and all, but it has been 19 years at this point, so I'm going to say that prediction was wrong. Joanne said they only had the psychic come in because why not? Nothing else had worked and they were desperate. But Becky was more focused on offering a reward. Law enforcement believed whatever happened to Branson happened in Skidmore and that multiple people knew about it. Becky wanted to get one of them to talk, and what better way than to offer them what they need, which is money? If their conscience wasn't pushing them forward, maybe a few thousand dollars would. It is hard to get major funding for a reward. I mean, how much money does a spaghetti dinner bring in, really? And Becky wanted to do more than that. She had been going to school for IT while also waiting tables, and she had saved up towards a vacation that she was going to reward herself with after all the hard work she had put in. But she took all of that money and put it into the reward instead. By the time she took literally her life savings and the money she raised through fundraisers, she had a $5,000 reward. Unfortunately, it did not bring anyone forward with the information they needed to solve the case. 
Then in April 2003, two years after Branson disappeared, a suspect emerged, someone not involved in the Skidmore drug scene. This is going to be one of those famous little journeys here in Crime Lines where we have to go backwards so we could go forwards. We have to explain how this person got on the police radar, and it will tie back in the end, I promise. In January 2001, the FBI began Operation Candyman, which was an investigation into online child pornography. The net they cast caught many people, and one of those was a man named Michael Davidson. While they found enough images on his computer to put him away for a long time, they also found graphic online chat logs of him talking to other predators. One of them was a man named Jack Wayne Rogers. He was a minister and a Boy Scout leader in Fulton, Missouri, which is located four hours from Skidmore. A minister and a Boy Scout leader in pedophile and rapist chats online. Let that sink in or don't. I don't blame you if you don't. Rogers told a story in this gross little chat about how he picked up a blonde-haired hitchhiker from Skidmore, Missouri, and did terrible and graphic things to him before killing him. The information provided about the young man he picked up matched Branson Perry's physical description perfectly, and the circumstances and timeline matched the circumstances and timeline of his disappearance. A raid of Roger's home and office yielded some of the most vile images you can imagine. For one, there was a lot of child pornography, and this turned out not to be his first offense. In 1992, he pleaded guilty to receiving child pornography in the mail and served four months in jail for it. But then, thanks to the internet, Rogers now had even more of it that he could obtain online. So quick content warning here before I get into the next section. None of this episode has been pleasant, but the next minute or so we'll cover some details of violence against trans women that I cannot skim over. I will pause a second here to let everyone who wants to hit that 30-second fast-forward button two or three times to go ahead and do so. Okay, so in addition to the child porn, there were photographs of Roger's posing with severed male genitalia. It turned out Rogers was performing illegal gender confirmation surgeries out of a hotel for desperate trans women suffering deeply with dysphoria. These were unqualified and unlicensed butcher jobs. There was a little regard for the health of the woman involved, and there was no reconstruction, just removal. One woman who spoke at Roger's eventual sentencing on all of the charges said that she didn't feel at first like she was a victim in a traditional sense because she consented to the surgery. But then she learned that Rogers posed for photographs with the severed parts. He did not help her out of some sort of misguided assistance to the trans community. Rogers 
based on these chat logs and photographs, was mutilating people for his own sexual gratification. He had used her and a few others this way. Some of what Roger said he did to Branson in that chat log also feeds into this mutilation. But Rogers claimed that what was in the chat log was fantasy, just fantasy, not reality. He told investigators he never actually met Branson. He never picked him up, and everything he knew about the case was from seeing his missing persons flyer. He then filled in the details with his twisted mind. Rogers was not charged with Branson's disappearance or murder. There really wasn't any evidence aside from those chat logs which Rogers claimed were just his imagination. They couldn't take it as a confession and compare it to any evidence because there was none. There was a necklace found in Rogers' house that Bob Perry said looked like one Branson owned. It was a pendant of a turtle's claw, but they swabbed it for DNA and did not get any results. And there were no photographs of Branson actually wearing it, so they really couldn't prove it was his. Becky said Branson had a lot of jewelry in the same style, but she didn't remember this specific piece. Bob wasn't home the day Branson left, so he didn't know what if any jewelry, Branson was wearing that day. I think this identification of the necklace is worth noting, but it isn't a smoking gun, which is how it is sometimes framed in discussions of this case. When Rogers was charged and pleaded guilty to all the other stuff they could prove he did, Becky went to every one of his court dates. She hoped something would come out that would give her an answer one way or the other about Roger's involvement in her son's disappearance. That day never came. Becky eventually came to believe that Roger's had nothing to do with Branson's disappearance and that he really had just conjured this sick fantasy about Branson after seeing the missing poster. Jack Wayne Rogers is currently in federal prison. He will not be released until 2028, or hopefully never. He is 75 years old right now, so he might not make it another eight years to release. A side note, in 2014, a Presbyterian minister came forward to say that he was sexually abused by Rogers in 2000 when he was a teenager. Rogers was a chaperone on a trip to a national youth conference in Maryland, which is when the assault occurred. So yes, eight short years after he pleaded guilty to child pornography the first time, Rogers was allowed to be a chaperone on a youth trip where he assaulted a teenager. I 100% believe Jack Rogers has more victims out there who have not come forward. But Branson likely wasn't one of them. I think he is a convenient solution for those in the Skidmore community who do not want to believe it was someone who lives amongst them who was responsible for this. But that's exactly what the police seem to think. 
Over the years, the sheriff would question people about Branson's disappearance when they'd get arrested for other things like drugs. And through this process, he believes he knows what happened. Leading up to his disappearance, Branson had recently begun experimenting with drugs, and he was actually helping get the supplies for people to make meth, like Gina said. Branson also had some sort of issue or run-in with a local police officer. Now, the details are not public, but this interaction made a few people worried Branson would talk to save himself from charges. The sheriff, who is now the former sheriff, said there were nine core people involved in what happened. Branson was shot to death, and everyone in that core group knows who pulled the trigger. He also said that he knows where Branson was shot. It was at a house that suddenly burned down shortly after he went missing. Two tips that came in to help clarify what happened both came in 2009, and they were independent of each other. The two people involved both claimed they knew what happened and even knew where Branson was buried. When shown a map, both people pointed to the same area. Again, independently of each other. So the police went out there with two cadaver dogs. The property that the people had indicated was a thousand acres or so. But both cadaver dogs indicated on the same spot separately. The handlers then took the dogs out to other parts of the property to walk them around and then approached the area where they indicated once again. Both indicated again on the same spot. They did this repeatedly a dozen times, and only once did one of the dogs not indicate that spot. So they decided they were going to go ahead and excavate. As they dug in that spot, they found an item that confirmed to them that they were in the right spot. What that item was has not been revealed publicly, but we do know that they did not find Branson's body. The dirt in that area was noticeably different than the area around it, not in the sense that it had been dug up eight years ago, but more that it had been more recently overturned. The theory is that someone got tipped off, that people were talking, and Branson's remains had been quickly removed. However, they missed that one item, whatever it was, that let police know that they were in the right spot. Even without Branson's body, the case was submitted to the prosecuting attorney with all of these little pieces. The police felt there was enough here to arrest the main people involved and take the case to trial. The prosecuting attorney, however, disagreed, and no charges have been brought. Branson's father, Bob, died in 2004. His mother, Becky, died of cancer in 2011. Prior to her death, the sheriff went to her and presented the entire case and everything he knew all the information he had given to the prosecuting attorney. He did not want her to die without knowing what happened to her son, even if she wouldn't live long enough 
to see justice for him. The sheriff promised to keep looking for Branson. And hopefully one day, he can end his search and bring the family the answers they need. (laughs) 